the world will continue to grow and sustainable energy sources can produce so much. But if we can add a massive efficiency layer into our overall supply chain, where we dramatically improve the efficiencies of what we do, then we get a huge improvement in decarbonization. And then we get a huge improvement in just the need for electricity or the need for energy sources. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla 76. From climate change driving the need for sustainable and zero carbon energy production, to transportation and mobility of all kinds, moving to automation and interconnectivity, to the explosion of robotics and cobots, to the resurgence of American manufacturing amidst covid and supply chain challenges. There are some powerful forces right now that are driving what my guest today describes as the move to an all-electric society. But his company isn't only talking about it, they're living it. Let me introduce him. Jack Nalig was named president of Phoenix Contact USA in November of 2001. He's responsible for Phoenix Contact's USA operations comprising of the US sales subsidiary as well as the Group Center of Competence for the Americas. In addition to his U.S. responsibilities, in 2016, Jack became a member of the Phoenix Contact Group Executive Committee. Prior to joining Phoenix Contact, Jack spent 19 years at Honeywell in various sales, marketing, and executive positions, including Vice President and General Manager of the Sensing and Controls Division. Mr. Nalig currently serves on the Board of Governors and is Treasurer of the National Electric Manufacturers Association. NEMA. He holds a BS in industrial distribution from Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York, and an MBA from the University of Phoenix in Arizona. Jack resides in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is married, and has three sons. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Boy, it sounds like I'm getting old. <laughs> well, Jack, I'm really, really excited about this conversation. I, I always do a planning call with my guests. And the one that you and I did together, I don't know, a month or so ago, got me thinking about a lot of things. I can't wait to tap into your brain here. So this is exciting. Awesome. Me too. Can't wait to go. Cool. Well, Jack, you have talked to me about how we are rapidly moving toward what you've described as an all-electric society. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, it's it's... Kind of a convergence, Joe, of some big mega trends. We all feel this around us, but our company has chosen to name it, and it it really crystallized it for me, and I'm sure it does for many. But it's first and foremost driven by the, the climate change issue the world is dealing with, and born out of that is the need for decarbonization, and then the big targets on the back of a couple of industry sectors, one being the energy generation, the electric generation in our world, and then two being the transportation sector, which is a big consumer of of the carbon energy forms. So first of all, there's this massive 
need to act in the world to try to decarbonize and therefore work on the electrical sector, which tends to be both from a producer and consumer perspective, a big cause of the problem, if you will. So that's a big driver of this all electric society. But then there's a couple other things coming along at the same time. It's more of a convergence of a few more vectors. And, and that would be, you know, the evolution of IoT. And in the industry, industrial world, it's IIoT or Industry 4.0. So all this cloud-based smartification and electronics get, getting everywhere into our worlds. And then one I love to think about is robotics and cobotics are evolving into a more more mainstream topic. And then lastly, the whole geopolitical uh, environment where supply chains and things are moving things around and our world is unstable. So that instability also gets into this mega trend that's causing forces to create this need. And the idea in the end with all of these things converging is we're going to end up in and we're creating a society that will be driven by very sustainable electrical production and the end consumption of it will be highly electrical, very autonomous, and very networked in the end. It's a complex vision, but it's a vision of a very pervasive, exciting world in the future. Great overview there, Jack. You know, what I'd love to have you do is you started naming what I know you've described as these four mega trends that are kind of driving the push towards this all electric society. Let's go in depth on each and start wherever you'd like, but I'd love to have you break down these mega trends. So if we go to the first one, right, which was the force of climate change driving the the energy production sector first, right? So we've all seen it, heard about it are witnessing it, this transition to sustainable energy. The, the main icons of that being wind and solar, and the main evil there has always been coal. And if you look at the U.S., for example, we've dramatically reduced our coal over the last decade. If you look at the number, it's down to, I think, 19% of our energy production. So it's, it's really getting to be less of an effect here. Whereas Central Europe still relies a lot on coal, China is still raising their coal um, production of electricity. So there's this fight on how do we get enough wind and solar and or other carbon-friendly forms of energy production to go. And it's an exciting thing to watch. And what I've learned by running a company that has its own production and has its own facilities is... I, you know, people just, and this is a theme I, I say throughout almost all electric societies, people don't know what they don't know. I mean, we, we see in the news wind and solar, we see incentives, but we, we don't act because we don't understand it well enough and we don't think it's really financially viable. And a story I like to tell is, so I don't know, seven or eight years ago, first, I talked to my facilities leader and we discussed maybe generating our own power. And we, we have a large facility here, a large campus with 750 people, office buildings, factory, automated warehouse. We chew up a lot of electricity, about 1.5 megawatts. And so we embarked on it. And the first thing we did is we thought, what the heck, we'll put in natural gas-fired microturbines first, which we did because natural gas was low-cost supply. It's a relatively clean energy source. But we thought, boy, it's going to be costly. Well, in the end, with government incentives that existed, nothing special that we got, and the cost of natural gas 
it turned out to be a payback in about three years, and we're saving for our checkbook hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and producing our own electricity. It's been reliable and fantastic. And our local utility, when they found out we were doing it, wanted us to do it because they were dealing with grid capacity issues during peak times in the summer, for example. We just did it. and But that was about a megawatt, so it didn't produce all of our electricity. So then just Last year, we did the next megawatt. We decided, what the heck, let's try the solar approach. And five years ago, we looked into solar and the payback wasn't as good. And we targeted this one main roof on our warehouse. And at that time, the space would give us about 600 kilowatts of electricity generation. Five years later, the same space on the same roof, the panels are more efficient now. We can do 970 kilowatts almost a megawatt on the same space. And the price of the panels is less today than it was five years ago. So now when you look at the economics of solar versus only five years ago, when there were incentives, when there were reliable products, today it's almost fall off the log. It's You can do it, you get your money back really quick, and you save lots of money. So one is it's a green agenda. You're doing the right thing for the environment. But two, it's amazing how easy it is and how efficient and affordable it is. But people just don't know it. They don't think, you know, you talk to another company owner or business owner and say, hey, why don't you generate your own electricity? They go, hey, you can do that. They think that's somebody else's job. So so that was a big learning for us here in the U.S. on electrical generation. And the other comment I would make there is we're in Pennsylvania. So my comparative cost that I compare my generation to is actually very low because we have a lot of nuclear in Pennsylvania and a lot of natural gas in Pennsylvania. You go to other states, New York and many other states, the comparative is high. So the paybacks are even better in those states. So if we could do it on three to four year paybacks on our money and then a great return over 10 years, others in other states could do it even better. So that's, that's energy production. So then there's mobility, right? So we're all seeing this whole e-mobility debate play out. And I love being on uh, social media, primarily LinkedIn, because it's a business environment. And I love seeing that play out there because we're seeing all these advancements and all these launches of cars and things and trucks and planes and all kinds of things. And everybody loves naysaying, you know, that, yeah, but what happens when it snows and what happens when, you know, this doesn't happen and that doesn't happen. But it's, it's an amazing force that's coming and it's coming very, very fast. And a little tie to the previous story, about a decade ago, this all started and we saw it. So we kicked it around and thought, you know, let's put a charging station in the parking lot so that when people finally buy a car, they could get a little bit of a juice when they come to work, right? So we did it, but we decided, you know, if you put it with regular grid hookup back before we were making our own electricity, you're still pulling off the grid. And if the grid's coal-fired, you're still doing carbon to get your clean car, right? So that's silly. So we thought, you know what, what the heck, we'll We'll get, we got a couple of college kids one summer and we had them design a little solar powered charging station. So it's this little, not a garage, but like a carport that the car pulls into and there's solar panels on the roof of it. And these college kids designed this and it generates enough electricity to sit there and charge your car during a sunny day. So we have e-mobility and complete carbon-free generation of the electricity doing the car. It works. That's amazing. And the whole th the whole thing works. I love that example. So we were blown away about how it worked, and um, and so 
so the e-mobility sector's coming really fast. Tesla proved an amazing thing. You know, now he, he deployed all these charging stations around the country, which were critical to making it work. And I've seen good statements on the internet about, you know, the only true effortless transportation and e-mobility is Tesla right now because of all those char fast charging stations. But our current president, you know, came on board and said, hey, let's build out 500,000 fast charge stations around our highway network so that people can use it. And he's right. That's needed. There is a network out there. It's sort of patchwork. It's not highly reliable. It's difficult. But you know, the president's right. 500,000 is probably, I would call it the bare minimum. He, he's probably missed a zero on that. We need about 5 million fast charge stations in this country. But if we get 500,000, you can get a good chunk of society moving around and maybe 20, 30%. Um, but the, the amazing thing is we will get to the 5 million fast charge stations. It will come. And, and right now, you, the main application for electric cars, although you can drive far, is your local driving. And if you're a family that has one, two, or three cars, you could easily have an electric car and and you would be very pleased with what you get. And especially if you can get free charges from certain places, that works out wonderfully. The other one that that I like to think about, though, too, is I think the first obvious application for e-mobility, there's, there's sort of two, but the, the big one with me is trucking, long haul trucking, not around the city, you know, through difficult navigation trucking, the last mile trucking where the guy's bringing this tractor trailer to your building to pick up product or deliver it or do something like that. You know, that you need a driver to navigate the tight spaces and all the things you've got to do. But just think of the long haul trucking in our country. We are, we are, we are the king of long haul trucking. We we move product from the west coast to the east coast to the east coast to central, central to the south. We just move these trucks all over the place. And if you ask people nowadays, they say one of the big problems is we don't have enough truckers. We don't. You got macroeconomics of a lot of them retiring, the baby booms retiring off, plus huge demand, and we're just not going to have enough truckers. So. Long haul trucking is a wonderful opportunity. You know, it's get that truck in the right hand lane, have it go exactly 65 miles an hour, not one mile more, one mile an hour or less. Have it autonomously go down that road and then pull over when it gets to the right city. And then some trucker Ubers out to that spot, jumps in the truck and drives it to the last mile. And you would, you would not only decarbonize with that if you did that truck not only autonomously but if you did it in an electrical form in some way but today we kill 40,000 people a year on american highways and it's been debated and highly predicted that if we could get autonomous technology in all cars even if you're driving but you have all the autonomous technology keeping you from getting into accidents we could save at least two-thirds to three-fourths of those. You would save 30,000 lives a year, and then think about accidents would drop at the same ratio. So then you'd be in the millions of accidents and injuries, and all of that would just drop out of society. So electrification and autonomous driving of trucks, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us in this country to, to 
decarbonize, to electrify, and to save a whole bunch of lives. And and there's still great trucking careers. They could do the last mile, all these great things. And if if you were then a truck driver and you knew you didn't have to do these long hauls and be away from home and all that sort of thing, be home for dinner every night, how wonderful could life be? So I, I see some model there on, on that that I think is fantastic. So, so in mobility, that's all happening. And then even General Motors, uh, Mary Barra's uh, keynote out at CES, she, she sort of ended on, you know, vertical takeoff and landing autonomous flying. You know, you, she had the thing flying over the buildings. And I've been watching that one for a decade, actually. I think I looked it up. The first one I discovered, and many others did too, it was a little company in China called Ehong. They came out with the Ehong 184. And it was a drone. It just looked like a drone. It still does. They, they actually make them. And it's blown up to be human size. So it's the classic drone with the four propellers, you know, on the four corners. And then the little center section is now like a little egg shaped thing where you sit in it. You get in it and it's got like an iPad and, and a map and you just plug in where you want to go. And it'll fly 20 minutes in the air electrically at 60 miles an hour. So you can go about 20 miles and then land wherever you asked it to land. And you don't know how, how you don't have to fly it. It's all electric. And uh, I think I read the city of Dubai bought a hundred of them and they're testing out an autonomous taxi service, right? So so if people think it's crazy, they're right. I mean, you got to decide you want to do that, but it's coming. It, it, you can't stop this. And, and now since then, if you just Google autonomous electric air flight, you'll see dozens and dozens of startup companies and major companies developing product too. So not only in not only on our roads, but we're going to electrify our airways. It's going to be amazing to see. So oh. mobility is a big topic. I think um, it's it's really coming. It's it's super exciting, and I think I'm excited to to be part of it in the future. The the other one that goes along with that the the whole business model change that's crazy, right? So if you get autonomous going and electric, you know, and I keep thinking, and I've posted this many times uh, on social media that I keep thinking this is what Apple's up to. You know, there's this talk about Apple's hired a thousand engineers or 2000 engineers to come up with an Apple car, but I think they're, they're doing it and they're waiting for the right moment. And, and I think it, it's tied to autonomous driving. I mean, think about it, Joe, if you have a, a son and a daughter or something, they're going their teenage years they get to be old enough to drive. You go, okay, go get your license and we'll buy an old car. You can have mom's car. I'll have my car. It's about, it's old, 10 years. You can drive it. Well, the insurance, the upkeep, the whatever, the whatever, whatever. And what are the kids doing? They're just going to band practice, going to the mall. They're just running around to their friend's house. You know, they don't really need much of a car. They just need some mobility, right? Yeah. Well, what if you just gave them the app and said, here's a hundred bucks a month to get around to see your friends and use it up and you ain't going anywhere. And all it is, is you push the button and this little pod shows up. This little Apple iCar shows up at the house. Nobody's driving it. You get in, there's only room for two. It takes you to the mall. It takes you to band practice. It takes you where you want to go and you go home. And you know, does the car need to be a $30,000 car? No, just needs to be a safe little pod. Doesn't really need any music. No, you know, no, no entertainment stuff. Seats don't have to be that comfortable. You're only going to be in them for 10, 15 minutes. But these little things could be moving around your neighborhoods and your town. And then Apple's just cranking those things out, the little iCar, little iCar. And you don't have to own it. You could just, you could own one maybe, or you could just, you know, it'd be a, just an app on your iPhone. So I think that's the other extreme of e-mobility. It can go to a whole new model of what cars are for us. And so, so it's crazy. The development of that in the all electric society to me is, is a crazy trajectory coming at us really fast. 
Yeah. I mean, geez, you hit on a lot of stuff there, but you're right. It's, it's pretty wild. And and we see the, we see the beginnings of all this around us and it's only going to get more advanced and probably pretty quickly. Well, Jack, let's go to the next of, you know, the mega trends you've, you've identified. I know you mentioned to me just the emergence of robotics and cobots in particular. So tell me how you see that playing into this all electric society. It's, it's another amazing one, Joe, and it sure fits with the people just don't know what they don't know statement that I gave you earlier. Again, I'll go to our experience. Pretty simple story. You know, we've been watching this come along, reading a lot about it. We're an automation company, so it kind of fits our DNA to experiment with things and do this stuff. So back to our facilities, we've been watching the fact that robotic lawnmowers have been marketed for the last five or 10 years. So we bought five of them and we have an acre or two or three, I forget, I don't know, about three acres around the building campus and have a traditional mowing service guys show up with their, you know, the zero turns and very noisy and they zoom around and they mow our lawn. But we, we uh, worked with that landscape guy and said, well, how about if you cut out the main low- mowing and you just do the leaf blowing and a little bit of the edging and pick up sticks and just make the place look nice, maybe do the plants. But we want to mow. We we're going to electric mow, autonomous mow. So we we buy these units, Husqvarna, by the way, a little commercial for Husqvarna, <laughs> and um, they mow whenever you want them to mow. They can mow at night, so no one ever sees them. They can mow during the day. They can mow in the rain. They have little GPS things on them in case someone tries to steal them. You know where it is. They they mow frequently so that they're only taking a little bit off at a time. So all week long, your lawn always looks like the day after it got mowed, not it gets mowed. And then it looks like two days before it needs to be mowed. Right. So, so the appearance is better and the financials again, blew us away. So we, we buy these things, a couple, 2000 plus or minus depends on the model you're buying. You add them up 10 grand or whatever. Well, the, the lawnmower guy gave us a subtract, and the subtract was about half of it. So then the payback was two years. And then after that, we're saving five, six grand a year just mowing our lawn. So we're kind of going, that, that was easy. And all it was was you put a little wire around the property where you want it, like a dog fence, a pet fence. And then it, it by the way, it parks itself at night and charges itself up and you do a little maintenance once every three months you go check on it maybe replace the blades or small little blades not big fancy heavy duty blades anybody can do it with a wrench so you just watch out for them and take care of them so we did that and actually had an, another podcast host come and do something with us a couple months back and when he saw it he said oh my gosh you guys are so into robotics and aren't you even mow your lawn that way and we're like well that's the small part of it right we we're just learning so but it, but it's amazing and anybody could do that i mean there's nobody but if you ask people you say would you consider robotic lawn mowing they go oh it's got to be expensive now I, I have a kid down the street mows my lawn you know and i move it myself i like seeing the lines when i'm done and but if they would understand it, try it, and realize they could get rid of their lawnmower, never have to mow the lawn, go do something more fun. I don't know. So, so lawnmower is where it starts, and then you can get into the core of manufacturing. So we build terminal blocks as one of our products. We have these automated production lines. They're about 30 feet long. It costs a million dollars to build them. They metal parts, plastic parts are f- going moving around in there and it's assembling the terminal block and you get at the end and then it has to be packaged in a box and that part of the 
production process was not automated because that varies dramatically. The boxes are a little different and then you picking up the parts are different. So the theory when the lines were designed 10 years ago was, well, the operator fills the hoppers and gets it ready and programs the order. And then they can be at the other end of the line and pack the product. It's okay. Well, that job of packing the product's a little boring, first of all. And these people that are operating these lines are tech skilled to your techs and we make sure they're good, good jobs. And it's kind of a boring part of it. They don't like it and it's a waste of their talents. Mm -hmm. So 10 years ago, we didn't have a choice. Today, we get a cobot, put it on the end of the line. Yes, we have an engineer or two that had to work on it to get it ready. But now there's a cobot and it just packs the boxes. It picks the box, assembles it, packs the boxes. And now I ask the workers whether they like working with a cobot. They go, this is the greatest thing that happened to us because now we're not going to do that boring job of packing. The cobot works great. They're in charge of the whole setup still. It's just another piece of automation. And now they're more efficient. They can, they can do other more important things. We can grow. And yes, we add a few less people over time, but people are hard to find, right? Generally speaking, when you're growing. So, so we've put a cobot in. Guess what the payback was? You know, the classic, about two, three years, we got our money back, and it's just saving us money every day after that. So from from robots in our lawn, our lawn to robots in our building, those are just two we've done. And we have several more being planned and deployed right now to take over those non-value-added functions. But if you ask people, you say, look, do you know what a cobot is? They say, yeah, and they look at those cobots on the internet, and they say, well, they got to be expensive. I don't have people to put it in. There's many amazing system integrators out there right now that'll come in, deploy it, put it in there, and then they'll even service it for you, whatever, just like the people that could service a lawnmower. And away you go. And this to go back to the original story to end this part, the, the amazing thing was the, the lawn, landscape company that mowed, mowed our lawn, when we came up with the idea, I said to my facilities leader, I said, you know what? Talk to them. Tell them we want to do it. Tell them if they want to buy the robots, the robotic lawnmowers, and put them in and then just charge us less but still make money on the service, and then they change the blades and they make sure they're working, they can own them. We'll do that. Just give me a proposal. The landscape guy said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. You can do it. So that's back to the you don't know what you don't know. He, he was that scared of it. He didn't understand it. He was a little nervous about it. So – Anyway, that's the story on robotics, and and we all think robotics is the big iron on the automotive factory floor doing all those welding sparks, man. That's, you know, those big, big iron robots, and those things are amazing, and they do amazing things for this world, by the way. But this evolution of the other robotics, right, taking over tasks in a more flexible, intelligent way is, is going to be a massive trend in this country for the next decade, just massive trend. I think it's great stuff there. I mean, and I think if I have one takeaway, it's that I'm, I'm going to leave after uh, this interview and go file for an LLC to start a, a robotic uh, lawn mowing business in the St. Louis area. So thanks for the idea. Yeah, <laughs> you do that and I'll do it here. I need to do yeah, right, that too in right. my neighborhood. Awesome. We'll, we'll regroup weekly and, and share um, insights and stories. <laughs> you bet. Awesome. No, that it really though, a lot of smart examples there. And, and you, you kind of brought up something that I just hear time and time again. I had, you know, recently had, had um, Scott Lindemann, who's the CEO of Mission Design and Automation on the show. Um, I've had Eric Nieves from Plus One Robotics. I've had, um, trying to think of a few others that uh, Aaron Prather from FedEx. And 
you know, everybody kind of says the same thing. Like this is not all or nothing. It's not, you don't have to go make some multi-million dollar investment to get started with robots. Um, you start small, you find a small application where you can solve a problem or you can fill a need where labor is too hard to come by. Or like you said, where it's, it's a boring Mm -hmm. job that nobody wants to do. And then you redeploy your people and make better use of their skills and give them better chances to advance in their careers rather than doing the grunt work. Um, so a lot of good stuff you brought, you brought to the table there. Well, thank you. Awesome. I, and I would I would throw out maybe one last one, if you will. Yeah. Uh, maybe a maybe a U.S. commercial, a U.S. resurgence story. But mm-hmm. you know this this global geopolitical from tariffs to supply chains to pandemics. You know, I think we've all learned the world economy is highly entwined. But I think we've all learned lessons. We need to maybe disintegrate a little bit instead of completely integrating everything. And um, maybe the U.S. as a manufacturing location is going to resurge quite a bit. The exciting part of that in the all-electric society is a little bit to my cobot story, but much bigger than just the cobot. The whole development of Industry 4.0 or IIoT and smart manufacturing, all those topics that you know a lot about, Joe, they're all converging pretty fast, too and are going to allow a clear reversal in the trajectory of manufacturing in the U.S. We are about to see, and we are in the middle of seeing, a resurgence and a, and a recapitalization of this country to become a manufacturer once again. Now, we never were not. I mean, we've, we've always still built things. But there are many forces coming at us to allow us to build more things and more things and more things. Again, to the old footprint of manufacturing, to a new footprint of manufacturing, a much smarter manufacturing environment, you get into that electrification of so many things, the the networking of so many things, the smart adaptation of so many things, that the manufacturing environment is going to be a much more exciting electrical environment, too, that's going to cause efficient, very efficient production of end items much more efficient than it ever used to be. So in that, that efficiency gain is huge for this country. It's huge for the world because the world will continue to grow and sustainable energy sources can produce so much. But if we can add a massive efficiency layer into our overall supply chain, where we dramatically improve the efficiencies of what we do, then we get a huge improvement in decarbonization, and then we get a huge improvement in just the need for electricity or the need for energy sources. And that's an exciting additional development, in my opinion, that, that we are, we are going to see this massive revitalization of the manufacturing world and changing of the paradigm of what that, what that means. That's all a great point. What, what didn't I ask you about, Jack, that you'd like to communicate to our listeners before we put a wrap on it? I guess what I would like to communicate to manufacturing executives, to the engineering community, is a little bit back to my original point about a lot of our customers just don't know what they don't know. And I think what they, what we all can do is do a lot of missionary work right now on these trends and on the possibilities of what can actually happen. And it's it's needed more than before. 
because it is such a strange new world coming at us, right? It's such a different reality. Like think about the story again with the, the parents and the kid and the phone and not even owning a car, but they have a car. Any, any example, cobots in your manufacturing facility, cobots in your warehouse. I think we got to do a lot of what you're doing, which is spread the word. We, we, we really got to keep talking about it and push it hard so that people believe in it, that they, that they believe this stuff is true. And once we get over, I think that's what we're fighting right now. It's just a lack of belief. It really is. I think we're tired in manufacturing and we need, we need a resurgence and we need enough people believing in the future to get us there, to get people to follow and to get the change to accelerate so that it feels like we're making progress. So that's probably my last message to everybody and to myself every day is that we've got to keep telling our story. I agree fully with you. And I think it's a great message to send. Jack, tell us where our audience can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Phoenix Contact. Well, we're pretty pervasive on all social media forms, right? If you want to find the company on LinkedIn or Facebook, we're on both of those. Our website, it's phoenixcontact.com. That's easy to locate the company. My name is Jack. Last name is Nalig, N-E-H-L-I-G, at phoenixcontact.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I do my best to respond to people. That's about where you can find me. Beautiful. Well, Jack, thanks for doing this today. This is an awesome conversation. And I know that our listeners are going to get a ton of value from it. So appreciate you taking the time. Well, Joe, thanks for having me and uh, hosting these forums so that we can all learn together. I really appreciate your leadership here. It is my pleasure. Well, as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.